0: listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer. With me, as always, is Emily Shirey. Good afternoon, Emily.
1: Good afternoon, Grayson.
0: Before we get started today, uh, a couple things I want to go over. I just want to talk about some upcoming events we have uh, at Lost Highway Kennels and um, at various other venues. Uh, Coming up in just about a week and a half from now, I guess, yeah, two weeks from now, uh, we're gonna have the fourth annual John Yao Memorial Field trial. That's March 13th and 14th. Um started really kind of an EB only event. That's Epaniel Breton, uh, French Britneys, uh, for those of you out there in the pointing dog world. Um, it's a UKC trial. Uh it's a forward course. We're gonna have gunners on the course. It'll be uh we're gonna have broke stakes and gun dog stakes, uh, all birds. Will be shot on the course and retrieved to hand in both stakes, so um we hope you can make it if it's not something that you think you're quite ready for yet uh we'd still love to have you out check it out um kind of see what the u k c program's all about. I really like it. I think it's a a kind of a really good uh compromise between you know your kind of your major league trial type stuff and your um your more kind of kick around uh timed retrieving, you know, single course type trials. Not that there's anything wrong with either one of those, but this is kind of gives you the best of both worlds. So, um, you know, come out, give it a look, see if you like it, uh, enjoy lunch with us. And speaking of that, if you do decide to come and you know, you're not going to be bringing a dog, if you will go ahead and let our field trial secretary know, um, that you're going to be there so we can order you lunch. Uh, you can find all that information on my calendar at my homepage at www.losthighwaykennels.com. Uh, in addition to the rest of uh, these events we have coming up. So, April 17th, I'm going to have a snake aversion clinic here at the farm. Um, it's something I've been doing for about four years now. Uh, and uh, so far, it's working really well for us. I'm get, get starting to be able to develop a data set and get feedback, and we're looking at approximately about an 80% um, success rate with this. I am getting some feedback that a few snakes uh, uh, or a few dogs have not averted um, some snakes. Usually that's happening when the dog is left unattended in the backyard in our neck of the woods. So um, there's copperheads out here, and, you know, we have this snake aversion. We give them this singular learning event. Uh, if you want to find out more, you can just go ahead and click that link at our at our homepage too. Uh, it'll kind of describe the process. So, um, you know, the singular learning event, but if we, if we put the dog back out there and we expose them to snakes over and over again, that, you know, is liable to um, – to be forgotten so you know just something to remember i'm not saying don't leave your dog in the yard unattended but those seem to be the ones uh that are that are getting bit after they've been through the snake aversion um april 23rd uh, through the 25th i will be presenting at the gdiy bird dog camp at rusty guns kennels um, in Lillington, North Carolina, that's Scott Caldwell and Kylie Caldwell's place. Um, and GDIY is a uh, is another podcast. It stands for Gun Dog It Yourself. Um, with Nick Adair hosting. I hope I'm saying that right, Nick. Um, but uh, it looks like it's going to be a really good time. I'll be presenting on obedience. I know Scott's going to be doing. Oh, I could be incorrect, but I think Duck Search and Force Fetch. Yep. Um, and. So there'll be another presenter i'm not sure who it's going to be but working on steadiness uh currently so should be should be a lot of fun uh scott's a a very talented trainer with a wealth of knowledge and i look forward to getting there and hopefully having enough time to to attend some of his stuff on while i'm there um any anybody that's interested in that um check in with nick at the gdiy podcast i know that they are uh, kind of running out of spots, so hopefully there's a few left. If you're interested, uh, And we'd look forward to seeing you there again. That's April 23rd through the 25th. Um, after that, May 22nd, I'll be doing another snake aversion, and that's going to be at the Oropax Preserve in Goochland, Virginia. That's right outside of uh, of Richmond. For those that don't know, uh, Neil and Jane Cotter, good friends of mine, own it's a fantastic preserve. So if you if you happen to be anywhere between I'd say Raleigh and DC and you're looking for a really nice venue um, for a, for a great preserve day, uh, look no further for than Orpacs, It's worth the drive from, from the fringes of, uh, of that range. So uh, again, look forward to seeing those, those guys, great friends of mine and a wonderful venue, great hosts. So um, hopefully you guys can make it if you're in that neck of the woods. And then the last thing I have on the calendar uh, is a, uh, seminar that we're just putting together I'm putting together with my friend jay crafter of Invicti, invictus canine um Jay's had me out to Africa a couple of times to work on uh work with his anti poaching program um mostly tracking dogs so we're putting together a course called tracking foundations for uh game recovery and we're we're really just leaning on the principles that uh that jay the uh, kind of builds the rest of his programs upon uh with a focus towards game recovery as opposed to man tracking, which is kind of his normal bread and butter. Um, but you know, Jay as well as I believe that tracking fundamentals are tracking fundamentals and uh different species and spore are something we can kind of add as we move along. So if you've got a young dog, you're interested in either blood trailing, man tracking, whatever, I think you could benefit from this course and we'd love to see you. And it looks like we're going to be hosting that at the blue horizon quail preserve in Franklinville, North Carolina. So if you've got an interest, um, you can reach out to me through the website or, uh, I know Emily's taking the registrations and that is at, uh, what's that email, Emily?
1: Short hairs and shotguns at gmail.com.
0: There you have it, guys. So that's all I've got on the events calendar. I will be adding another one at the very last weekend of July into August 1st. I'll be presenting um, on puppy development and uh, in kind of drive building at the Epanuel Breton Gun Dog Summit. Uh, and that is hosted by the At Peniel Breton gundog society, um, around Peoria, Peoria, Illinois. It's not exactly in Peoria, but I know that's the biggest city close. And, uh, it's, uh, it looks like it's going to be an absolutely jaw dropping venue. Um, so, uh, give that a Google. I'll have it up on my site soon, but for those of you that have, uh, any interest in the EB that French Brittany, um, it, everybody that's anybody in this country looks like they're going to be there for this one. So, and that's within, within that breed. So I'm fired up about that. My good friend Clint LaFerry is putting that together and, um, uh, knowing Clint, I expect it to be, uh, a really, um, just top notch event. So hopefully we'll see you guys at one of those events between now and, uh, in August and excited to have the calendar that full and I will not take up any more of your time. We'll get right into the meat of things.
1: Awesome. Those sound like some really great events that I'm looking forward to. Today, we're going to cover episode two, and that's practical application of behavioral principles in dog training. And this is going to be a continuation of last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to that yet, please check out episode one, which is going to cover a lot of the terminology and vocabulary that we're going to continue to discuss today.
0: Great. So yeah, so... Again guys this is just expanding upon what we talked about last week. So uh, hopefully you've listened to that relatively recently um we when we got into that we were discussing how that that kind of um dog trainer's lens in which we view uh the state of affairs in dog training through um which is this the uh, field of behaviorism. Um it's really uh, the foundation for uh, the industry. So whether you're in obedience, you know, if you're a professional obedience trainer, especially police or protection sport type trainer, this stuff has become the norm in the, uh, in the gun dog world, we're just getting around to this becoming a, a, a modern piece of the conversation. And what I, th- Think is most important about it is I think it just gives us all a place to meet and have frank conversations on a level playing field uh, when we describe what we're talking about. So, so many times we run into old wives' tales or, um, you know, just traditions of training which are very important. But hey, you know, Grandpa did it this way, Uncle Uncle CJ in my case did it this way. Therefore, that's the way I do it, and it works, and that's what I need to know. Um, that's great, but when we try to teach others or when we try to have conversations about maybe what's going on in this method uh, as opposed to what's going on over here in a different method, it sure does help if we have a common vocabulary, a common set of uh, semantic principles that we rely upon um, to, uh, to kind of give us, uh, an, uh, again, a lens to view um, these methods through. So I think you can pretty much explain most things we do as dog trainers in any subfield of dog training, um, simply with the language of classical conditioning and operant conditioning and a little, uh, um, kind of fringe vocabulary around those two, uh, two areas of study. So we're not going to try to not dig, as deep as we did last week, mostly just talk about the the practical parts of this, but we're going to start. I do want to talk about the behaviorist perspective getting off. If you, uh, if you define the term behaviorism or behavior, uh, it's simply a response to environmental stimuli. And so what that means is, uh, the environment provides stimulation and an organism reacts to that stimulation in a certain way. And that's behavior. And my father, luckily I got to grow up with a clinical psychologist with a deep interest in, in behaviorism. And, uh, about 10 years ago, I guess less than that, about eight years ago, we were going to pick up a puppy, uh, that's now my house dog and has had three litters for me and has been one of the, the best dogs I've ever had. That's Ella. Um, and I got her from Linda Kier. So we my dad and I drove all the way out to Montana together. It was after I got done with a deployment to Afghanistan with the Marine Corps IDD program and it was just a wonderful trip and we never turned the radio on the whole time. You know, it was just one of those kind of cool things. I was in my 30s. He was getting a little older and uh we just had this opportunity to go out there and chat and and uh it was awesome and I'm very glad we did it, but Most importantly, or very importantly, I got to kind of pick his brain on what it is I do and how it relates to his understanding of psychology. And when we really got into behavior and I was, I was kind of getting in the weeds about, you know, something to do with operant conditioning. He kind of simplified it for me. And I remember his words were, you know, did the first protozoa swim towards the light or away from the darkness? And, uh, And in his Socratic way, the answer is both, you know, and so it's an important, uh, it's an important kind of concept to grasp guys is that we're never working in one block of the operant quadrant or the other. There's always some spillover. There's always some gray area and, um, and there are blurred lines in a lot of the things we discuss. So we try to get really precise language, but there are times where I might be talking about negative reinforcement and, um, I'm actually uh, practicing positive punishment or I'm talking about negative punishment and I'm truly just not reinforcing a behavior. Um, And, and so we'll, we'll discuss that further, but something to be aware of. So behavior, again, simply a response to environmental stimuli, environmental stimuli, straightforward. And, uh, and that response is, is behavior. Uh, Straight up, talk about classical conditioning that's pavlovian conditioning we discussed last week for us the easiest way we would describe it as a in practical application as a dog trainer to me is using is the use of positive reinforcement via a marker system so the positive reinforcement part being obviously operant so it doesn't really relate to the classical conditioning part but the fact that we have a marker uh, at all is um you know, is the the classical conditioning portion. That's, you know, that's what we're practicing purely. So I click, I treat, I click, I treat, I click, I treat, I click, I treat, I click. And by doing that, I elicit, uh, you know, the click elicits a conditioned response that is the exact same as the unconditioned response, which is salivation, Uh, in some cases, or in the Pavlovian study case. But really, what we're looking for and hoping for is that shot of dopamine to our reward center in the brain. So you remember last week we talked about neutral stimuli, we talked about conditioned stimuli, we talked about unconditioned stimuli. Um, The pairing of unconditioned stimuli with neutral stimuli result in a conditioned stimulus, right? And that is, in in this case, this is... The clicker, and that is a, um, a powerful, powerful tool. We can use a verbal mark. Um, we can use a tone on a collar. It really doesn't matter, guys, as long as we have a consistent mark. And and for us, go ahead. Hey, and Emily, sorry. Go ahead.
1: And what would you consider a verbal mark? Can you explain that?
0: Sure. So if I, as opposed to clicking and treating, and and um, I think the most common one we see used these days is people use the word Yes. So if I can consistently say the word yes and predict the delivery of a reward, then I can turn that, that noise that my face makes, um, into, into a, uh, an auditory marker for that dog to predict that reward. So in the same way that I would use a clicker and again, you know, the, the important part of that is consistency. What I want to make sure I do is that I say it the same way every time I, I don't want to get too emotional with it it can be pleasant it can be whatever comes out of your mouth naturally but the key thing is that it comes out the same way every time you do it so in my case yes 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 and uh you know i know that um my wife is tired of hearing me say that to my 18 month old so <laughs> it but it works it's a great uh it's a Great way to develop a marker system if you want to keep both of your hands free. There are those that argue that you just can't be as consistent um, with your verbal mark as you can with a clicker. And I I think there's probably some merit to that. Uh, And I think that using a clicker, especially for a novice, is a great way to ensure consistency and a great way to develop muscle memory. So do I think a clicker is necessary? or, you know, another kind of neutral stimulus that is, uh, um, uh, always has the same consistent sound. I don't think it is. I think you can use that verbal mark, but I certainly advise those getting into it to try the clicker first and, and develop that kind of muscle memory and flow, um, with that device. And then you can move into auditory markers as you so choose. Um, so hopefully that kind of covers the marker system uh and, you know classical conditioning you can call most things that we do especially if they're auditory you know uh that are pairing two two stimuli uh to get this kind of conditioned response uh, from from what was once an unconditioned response we can call that classical conditioning so oftentimes you know if i'm going to deliver a positive punisher you expect, you know, via, whether it's a leash and a prong collar or a choke chain or a slip, or it's the E collar and I'm delivering a Nick, which is normally the way I deliver, uh, an, an aversive correction. Um, and normally that's a positive punisher for me. Oftentimes I'll say the word no to predict that. And so essentially what I'm hoping happens is that, uh, the word no is not Telling the dog to do anything operantly, I'm not saying stop performing the behavior you're performing. What I'm really saying is prepare to feel pain, um, and and I'm what, I, what I'm hoping is that preparation to feel pain is reflexive. And if they're preparing to feel pain, then they're not going to continue performing the behavior that they were performing that bought them the positive punisher in the first place. So, hopefully that kind of makes sense in regards to classical conditioning. It can be any paired stimuli, uh, that lead to what was once an unconditioned response to a conditioned or an unconditioned stimulus. So thank food, salivation, tone, tone, food, tone, food, tone, food, tone, tone salivation. Um, and then the rest of the the rest of that is what we're doing to try and manipulate, uh, the dog's behavior. So moving on, uh, I do have in the notes kind of um, examples of markers out there. So we talk about the reward markers. Talk about something that is uh, that comes up quite often in conversation about this, which is non-reward or non-reinforcement markers. Um, very very popular discussion amongst kind of ro- more reward-based training or what people would consider R plus trainers. Um, there are again, blurred lines between negative punishment and non-reinforcement is if we're talking about training in reward based systems or primarily with positive reinforcement. So, you know, I think about that a lot is if I'm engaged with a dog, engagement is, is a really, really important part of, um, training in a marker system in positive reinforcement. So I've got my treat, I've got my clicker, I've got my dog and I really want my first criteria for me, or at least not, maybe not my first criteria, but, very very early on what i'm asking for from my dog is just to engage me simply follow me around solicit me for a reward make eye contact with me if i be- if i move away from you i want you to track me and i want you to really really be you know be solicitous of me and that's normally when i'm clicking and treating right when i click i'm ending the behavior whatever behavior you happen to be performing and i'm a- kind of enticing you to the treat away from wherever I had you to kind of get you to break position, come get your treat. That's the way I do it. Oftentimes I'll do that by throwing the treat on the floor or something to have the dog break to, to, so that they have to re-engage to get with me. If the dog begins to do things that I don't want them to do, oftentimes early on, that's like jumping on me or barking or doing something like that. I may say no and I may turn my back on the dog and walk away at that point. Um, we could call that non reinforcement. I'm simply just not reinforcing the behavior, I'm, and I mark it with a no. So, oftentimes, people will say that no in that context is a non reinforcement marker. I would probably argue that once you are engaged with the dog, and even if it's very briefly and still within the context of whatever um, environment you're in, if you're in a, a room, um, you know. But you walk away from your dog, you're taking not only yourself, but the reward that's already been introduced and the dog knows is available, you're taking that away. So I think, yes, I think there's a component of non-reinforcement, but I also believe there's a component of uh, of negative punishment in that specific context. And I think basically whatever your intent is determines what you're going to call that. So if you believe you're an R plus trainer and you remove yourself and the food from that dog for a few seconds to get them to stop barking at you or to get them to stop jumping on you, uh, you can say that that's non-reinforcement and I'm okay with that. I'm not going to argue that point with you. I would agree with that, but I, in the back of my head, I'm probably going, to be going yeah, it's also negative punishment. So, um, you know, the, the, again, one of those things is kind of, clear as mud but it's okay it's okay to be either way uh really a more pure example of non-reinforcement would just be simply uh, a a skinner box and a rat presses the lever and um the cocaine doesn't drop out from the sky you know and so it's a lot of things we do in dog training we try to describe them as if we are in a Skinner box or the dog is in a Skinner box and the environment is super, super tightly controlled, but it just doesn't work that way for us. You know, it, we create our own Skinner box. Um, we do the best we can to control the environment in a way that we we manipulate the behavior with as little input from us as possible directly, or at least that's what I do in those kind of scenarios. And, but I'm very well aware that I'm there and... Um, and once not only I'm there even observing it, but interacting with the dog, uh, it's no longer just the environment and the dog. Now it's the environment and me and the dog. Um, and uh, I think to I, I want to minimize my role as much as possible early on um, and to let the dog understand how to affect the environment to get what he wants. And, and that's getting a little... Far out there because I'm just what I'm saying really is that I want to be kind of a gray man and a part of the environment. I'm pretty much in early training. If it's me and a clicker and a dog in a room in a positive reinforcement heavy training scenario, I kind of want to be a pez dispenser and I don't really want to be too emotive with the dog or I don't want to, you know, especially anything I'm doing non verbally. I'm I want to minimize that and get as much out of the dog as I possibly can. So, you know, that kind of moves us on to talking about something we would be discussing like free shaping versus luring and shaping. Um, Luring and shaping, I might take the food, put it right in front of the dog's nose in my hand and kind of get them to chase it around and perform certain tasks and then I can mark and, and reward from there. Whereas in free shaping, I might step in the room and just wait for the dog to perform a behavior. And once they do... I mark and reward, and I have a behavior that I in mind, and I would successively approximate that. So I might have a placeboard in the room. Uh, Emily, would you like to break in here?
1: I just wanted to mention that there's a difference between free shaping and shaping. And that's important to distinguish that you can use things such as capturing for shaping, but it's not necessarily free shaping if you have any influence.
0: Absolutely. Free shaping, and, and she's absolutely correct. Can pretty much only occur in a skinner box, in my opinion i mean it's it, you really need to remove any outside influence from the dog and to or and, and from and I, I, if if this is something that you get hung up on you know one um, one of my favorite works on on the subject is uh, Superstition in the pigeon by B.F. Skinner. It's just a it's a pretty brief article, but it it simply talks about creating superstitious behaviors in pigeons, uh, and they do it uh, with with very little human influence other than delivery of rewards. So that's a good one to to kind of think of for free shaping. But thank you, Emily, for kind of clearing that up. It's it's an important thing to uh, to remember. If you're in there and you're influencing it, you're certainly not you you can't be free shaping. So, um, but. I think the less that we do influence the behavior and the more we allow the dog to kind of figure it out on their own. In my opinion, those dogs, are, I think that the rate of learning is much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we capture things and that's their idea. They performed it and they think they're going to be much more likely to try that behavior and then maybe even experiment with behaviors beyond that one the next time. So um, we kind of, drifted down a little bit of, ra- of a rabbit hole there still kind of hanging out in classical conditioning not even moving to operant yet <laughs> but that's that's marker training and so remember if we're talking classical we're simply just talking about the click and the reward um kind of something i've heard trainers get hung up on in the past is kind of confusing classical and operant and you know one of the things especially it's kind of you know re-listening to the last episode i I'm not happy with my description of um uh, of um s- s- uh, re- schedules of reinforcement. Like, I can't even get it out of my mouth now, but I I, w- I didn't like the way I described that. I was trying to kind of be really too dry with it, and and in in dog training, it's I, I talked about how it's intuitive. But again, it's kind of one of those things between you being in the room with the dog and imagining a rat in a Skinner box. If we're thinking of fixed ratio, fixed interval, variable ratio, variable interval, um, schedules of reinforcement, that makes a lot more sense if you imagine a rat in a Skinner box with a lever versus you in a room with a treat bag and a clicker and a hand that's going to make action and a voice that's going to make noise and a body that's going to make motion and all the influence you have on that dog. And no matter how subtle you think you're being, mm-hmm. you are delivering a ton of information to that dog in that context. So it's just something to be super, super aware of uh, getting back to like the, the blur, you know, where I think there's a confusion in the classical and the operant stuff is if I click that predicts, the delivery of a reward a hundred percent of the time. Like, um, there are times certainly if I click it and I don't deliver a reward, I mean, the dog's certainly going to still get a shot of dopamine to the brain, but I, I don't personally play with schedules of reward after the click. So, um, are is it possible for you to continue to get, a, you know, if you click on a variable schedule and reward on a variable schedule for that to continue to stay powerful, certainly there's no reason to not deliver. If you're going to have the clicker in play, if you're going to have a verbal mark in play and you don't follow it up with that reward, you run the risk of losing that association, right? It's always paired stimuli. So the click is stimuli and the treat is stimuli, and there's never any sort of operant in, the, in that action. So uh, to me, there's no variable schedule of reinforcement at all as far as that's concerned. It's click-treat. Click ends the behavior. Come get your treat every time. If I say no and I don't deliver pain, and then I say no and you continue to perform your behavior the next time, that's my fault, right? Because I, I'm not being consistent in what I mean when I say no, which is, hey, just prepare to feel pain. Right. And so, and I use the word pain simply because I want to use um, truthful language and I want to be uh, clear about what I'm saying. But at the end of the day, most of the pain that we're delivering would not, you know, would probably not be considered pain. It would be considered discomfort. Um, But it is what it is. It's something that we don't want, that we want the dog to avoid uh, and escape and not find pleasant. Uh, And pain is a, is a honest word for that. Uh, Moving into operant conditioning. Um, Operant is a response from the environment. It's a consequence to a behavior. So if we go back and we define behavior, again, we remember that behavior is simply a response to an environmental stimuli. So remembering that, and we define operant, a response from the environment consequence to the behavior. Now we're talking about the cybernetic relationship between the dog and the environment. And really what we're talking about is just a constant feedback loop. And if we think of ourselves as a piece of the environment and a very important piece of the environment, because we're the ones at the end of the day that are delivering a reward or determining when a, punisher or reinforcer of any sort is being applied to the to the scenario um that feedback loop is with us right so that's what what when you get in there and you engage a dog you're entering into um this this relationship with that animal where you make you make action they make a reaction and hopefully your actions driving their reaction um but they're going to give you feedback and you're going to have to react. But at the end of the day, like we said last time, anytime you're interacting with a dog, one of you is manipulating the other's behavior. And most times, both of you are manipulating each other's behavior. Even if you're a great trainer with solid intent and a good plan and a pretty precise delivery of reinforcers and punishers, you know the dog's still going to drive how you operate. And that's just important to remember, pay attention to the dog and you obviously have to make adjustments as you move along. So, um, we're going to get into the, uh, to the operant model. You may want to go back and look at that, uh, that diagram that we shared in the last notes. Um, but we'll go right into it. So positive reinforcement examples are everywhere, um, you're going to probably get tired of hearing me say this guy's name, but I really, really enjoy his podcast. Uh, Jerry Bradshaw talks in one episode, and I will put that in the notes which episode it is. Talks about frameworks of training, and uh, for him specifically, in the episode he was de- uh, t- that he was describing this, he was talking about lure and reward as a framework. Uh, for me, um, I think that's that's the framework for. Everything that happens up until uh, until we begin to introduce you know maybe collar conditioning for my young dogs that tends to be the first time they're going to feel any sort of escape avoidance um, I talked about free shaping, but Emily really uh, she she made a great point when she said, hey, if you're in a part of the environment then you ca- it can't be free shaping you're having an influence if you're having an influence that all can't just freely shape behaviors uh, you're the one capturing them and and manipulating them. Um, you know, so again, that positive, the positive reinforcements often combined with a formal marker system, uh, the mark must predict the reinforcer. Uh, we, you know, we talk a lot about food, food's a very precise way to train, um, a little more precision with food than there is often with prey reward. Um, but we need to remember, uh, that there are different values of food. And one thing, you know, for me, if I'm going to train with food, I want to get the most bang for my buck behavior wise. I want to be using the lowest value food possible to get the greatest behavior possible. And this is something I think I see a lot, a lot of clients come to me that maybe have been to pet trainers. And I see a lot of like jumping straight up to high value rewards for pretty, pretty, um, you know, mediocre behaviors in my opinion. And so I've got, so I see often see dogs that it's like if you don't have a hot dog or a piece of cheese or something like that you can't motivate them. Um, I personally use existential food when I'm training this way. The dogs, if I'm feeding them breakfast and I'm and I'm training you in a reward based system and you're my puppy, uh, then I'm then I'm training you with your kibble at breakfast time, and I want my dogs to 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 maintain a state of food drive. I don't starve them at all, but I don't give them free access to their food. And oftentimes they learn to access it through me. Um, And as soon as I walk into the room, they're coming in to drive. And that's pretty awesome. It's a great way to train. So um, unless you have some sort of moral opposition to it, training with existential food is something I highly recommend. And then when you really want to get a tough behavior knocked out, and you get hung up, and you pull out the big guns—maybe some freeze-dried raw, or some bill jack, or uh, you know whatever else you choose to use. Um, that dog gets extra motivated, and that's a that's a very kind of important thing to remember, as far as I'm concerned, about training with food. Um, prey reward in a marker system—timing of the mark is really tough. Uh, I, this is something we're we're going to have to discuss in for, you know future episodes is like. This is stuff we do in bird dogs all the time, and we don't even realize it. But, you know, when we talk about a dog maybe being broke to the shot, that shot's a mark. And that, that mark is a release the same way it is for me with a clicker. If I click and I release you to come get your food, if I shoot, a bird falls out of the sky, that's a release for you to go pick up that bird. You're, I am satiating drive at that point. You are uh, in imbalance. You are feeling a state of tension, and bam, the shot goes off. You're broke to steady to the shot, and boom, you're shot out of a cannon and you go pick up your bird and now you're super pumped and you're excited to go back to hunting again and we can kind of harness that power. So something to just keep in mind that, you know, when positive reinforcement is a part of what we're doing um, with a dog in the field, uh, we just have less control of the environment than we do when I have a treat bag on my hip and a clicker in my hand. Um, moving on from positive reinforcement into negative punishment. Negative punishment is the removal or withholding favorable, favorable stimulus uh, to make behaviors less likely to occur. Um, you know, the the one I think of, uh, the example I think of the most is like taking a TV out of a child's room if they have bad behavior. But, you know, it's also uh, just as we spoke about earlier, just um, removing a reward that's already present there are a reinforcer that's already present. Right. So, or a, or a favorable stimulus. Um, it's again, it's tough. I feel like it always blurs lines with non-reinforcement. It doesn't have to, but I mean, I think we can be, you know, we want to make sure that, uh, when we're discussing negative punishment, we're aware that, uh, we're also just failing to reinforce, um, you know going t- to something michael ellis said once uh, that i heard in a uh, in a recording um, he just asked simply so kind of socratically what's the opposite of reinforcement and everybody kind of jumps up there and says punishment um, and he says nope it's failure to reinforce or lack of reinforcement. And that made a lot of sense to me and it made me think a certain way. Uh, And it's just important to remember that, you know, not only am I removing something you want, I'm just failing to give you something you want too because you're not performing the behavior I want you to perform. And then simultaneously getting you to stop performing a behavior I don't want you to perform, if that makes sense. Um, uh, I like Uh, to, you know, to think of engaged scenarios when I'm thinking in terms of positive reinforcement and negative punishment. Um, If the dog is engaging with me and I remove myself, I feel like I'm negatively punishing some slight behavior. Uh, A way you might think of this in uh, in the context of bird dogs is if the bird flies away, that can also in a certain way be a negative punisher. If the dog takes a step, A bird launches and goes away. Um, We're removing prey. That being said, there's also kind of a positive reinforcing aspect to that, right? The bird, the dog, is stimulated by the action of the bird. So, very blurred lines, but but something to consider when we talk negative punishment. I often think for me in the context of being the bird being in the presence of the dog, the dog being in the presence of the bird, the dog performing an action he should not perform and the bird being taken away. So, um, for what it's worth, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't provide the clarity that I wish it did, but hopefully it's something you begin to, uh, put some thought into and maybe help clear up your own beliefs about what's going on in a bird dog. Um, any questions, Emily, or anything you think I should have should touch on in negative punishment before I move on to negative reinforcement? Just
1: in general, I think it's important that we understand that what the dog finds reinforcing and punishing is what's important, not what we find reinforcing and punishing. Yeah. Um, and I guess you can especially talk about that with kind of... Um, you know, different behaviors. A lot of people think that they're punishing their dog when they push them down for jumping. But if a dog is looking for tactile comfort, (laughs) when you touch your dog, he's finding that reinforcing. So it, it really boils down to what the dog finds reinforcing and punishing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a super, super good point. I mean, we see it all the time. You know, my dog, my dog just won't stop doing this no matter how much I do it. When the whole time you think you're, you're punishing the behavior by pushing them off of you, you know, or triggering opposition reflex, which is a whole other can of worms, but it's reinforcing that behavior, you know? uh, And, and again, like Emily said, just the simple fact that I'm putting my hands on you and gently (laughs) pushing you down. You love that feeling. So you continue to do it. Um, There is a, we could endlessly uh, discuss kind of inappropriate reinforcement when we think we're punishing and vice versa, um, that's why intent and clarity. And again, you know, I think it, I really liked your wording when you said what's reinforcing for the dog and not for the handler. Um, you know, uh, it's just, you have to try to empathize with the dog. You have to try and do your best to, to, to view the world through, uh, uh their, you know, being. Um, so that's tough. It's a very hard thing to do and they're not humans. And so I think maybe one way to consider it would be like instead of anthropomorphizing our dog, we like dogapromorphize ourselves, (laughs) right? (laughs) Let's make that a thing. (laughs) We'll just dogopromorphize ourselves or can't right? So it's you know, um, you wanna be a great dog trainer? You you gotta be uh thinking like a dog. Um so I guess we'll drive on with negative reinforcement. Uh, it, the fr- it, So for me, this, in my opinion, is kind of provides the framework for what I do. So if Jerry uh, in early training with his protection sports dogs is kind of primarily using um, lure and reward, I would think of myself as probably existing within the framework of escape avoidance more than others. And I think that that is because the, The numero uno primary reinforcer in the world to that dog exists in a environment that I have zero control over and I have zero control over the reinforcer. I have to let the dog go and hunt it and find it and interact with it in order for it to perform the behavior I want. So I spend, and most of us that whether we acknowledge it or understand it, we spend most of our time dealing in, drive neutrality and drive capping Um, or in quote unquote impulse control when we hear it a ton, right? So it's a, yeah, I like the term impulse control, but I don't think it accurately describes everything Uh, we're talking about. When we are managing our bird dogs um, in and around an environment that is that holds the power to reinforce them as, as much as the bird field does. Um, escape avoidance, uh, it, just basic, you know, if you go down and you read the notes, um, kind of from a, 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 a definition perspective, uh, the action of the dog, the dog performs an action to alleviate pain, discomfort, or annoyance. So we're talking negative reinforcement, the negative is the removal. The reinforcement is the behavior being more likely to occur in the future. And in this case, it's the removal of pain, discomfort, or annoyance. Um, the r- perfect example, the most beautiful example, I think, of negative reinforcement out there is the force fetch. Um, you know, learning to escape uh, in the present leads to learning to avoid in the future. Right. So if I'm force fetching a dog... Um, regardless of how I'm applying pain or discomfort, uh, continuous pressure becomes abbreviated over time. And so where I may send a dog, you know, on the table, if I'm using, you know, an old school ear pinch, uh, and I'm applying constant pressure until, um, the dog receives whatever the retrieve object, bumper, dowel, whatever puts it in its mouth and holds it. And I relieve the pressure. Over the course of time, what that's going to end up being is a dog at my side looking way down a field at a pile of bumpers probably. you know, We'll call that when I would, you know, before I make my quote-unquote warm bird transition, I would kind of consider myself being kind of through force fetch. Um, But I can say, you know, back to that dog and give a nick on the collar and that creates momentum. And that all started as that constant continuous pressure uh, to – um, you know, it, that is alleviated by putting something in your mouth and hanging on to it. And eventually that becomes you standing at my side, focused and ready and raring to go. And when I say back, not only do you leave because I'm squirting you out of a tube, you leave because you want that worse than anything in the world. I, the great thing about a dog that has good prey drive. Once the force fetch is complete is that, that retrieve item has the power to be a safe haven from pressure, but it also has the power of positive reinforcement as a prey item, and that's a, and that's a special thing. And it's a it's a special thing to acknowledge and think of when we're out there. The dog shouldn't just be going to that item because they're they're avoiding pressure. They should be going because they want it. And if you're not finishing up your force fetch with that dog wanting to run down the field for that bumper, um, you need to, in my opinion, reassess your process. Um, You know, uh, that I kind of got, got off on a tangent there, but I, you know, I think it's a, I think a lot about that and I know it's a subject that comes up ad nauseum in podcasts, but I think uh, there's plenty of room for clarity in that discussion. And hopefully that's something we can continue to, to seek and provide as we move forward. Um, Tools that you can use to uh, uh, implement negative reinforcement. Leash collars, mechanical, I I like to talk about mechanical advantage when I'm talking about specific collars, um, healing sticks in there that's been used for decades and centuries and generations. Um, and an e-collar finally is kind of, you know, the, 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 uh, the pinnacle of technology. These modern e-collars out there are, are fantastic devices for, um, precision application of discomfort to a dog. So, um, you know, for a leash, something as simple as a slip lead, I use that constantly. There's a slip lead rolled up in my back pocket all day long, every day. And for most of the dogs that come through, I I, I can get what I need done with that. Uh, it's, you know, uh, it's kind of unfair to those that, that haven't done it every day for a couple of decades because sometimes I slide a slip lead on and it looks like magic is happening. But I, it's just simply because I'm intuitively applying pressure without thinking about it. And I can do that while I'm talking to a client or something. Emily, you got something to interject there.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just important to mention that how you apply a pressure is important, but really with negative reinforcement, when you release it is what's important. So that's when the dog is learning that they're doing the correct thing is the timing of the release of pressure.
0: Absolutely. And you, which you you have that, you, you often say that in your, in your, uh, and her turnover spiel, I can't remember your phraseology, but yeah, I really like it. Yeah, uh, it's
1: pressure motivates, but the release teaches. Yeah,
0: yeah, I like that. That's you know that's a great way to kind of describe um, negative reinforcement and from a different perspective. Um, leash pressure into place command. Oftentimes is where I'll introduce negative reinforcement with the right dog. Sometimes, usually it's going to be uh, on a recall. But I I like to for I like to create momentum early. I want a dog's action to be the thing that turns off pressure and them learning to make action as opposed to stop action be the first thing I teach. And that's just personal preference. I've heard it certainly in the retriever community. Oftentimes it's it's taught the other way around. What do you think? Anything else to discuss with negative reinforcement in terms of you know practical application of tra- from a dog trainer?
1: Um, well, maybe the way we use... Co- e-collar conditioning sure. they're, the way we teach it is they f- are typically going to feel vibrate until they make forward momentum on our direction and then we release it. Yep. So there's, you know, a million ways to use an e-collar, but if you are vibrating them all the way home, all the way until back, they're back at you. Yeah. That's not releasing the pressure when they're doing the right thing. And so that's just kind of a different feel and it's not how I would perceive negative reinforcement or, sure. um, yeah, negative reinforcement.
0: Yeah, that comes up all the time, guys. You know, if I'm talking about how somebody should recall their dog uh, with the use of the e-collar, um, I'm going to apply continuous pressure until that dog turns, points their nose at me and makes action in my direction, and that's when I release pressure because that's when they're correct. If I hang on to that button until they're all the way at my feet, in my opinion, I'm punishing the correct behavior the entire time they're making action in my direction. So I want to release that pressure as soon as they do that. And I think that you get a lot of style and speed out of that two variable speed. That's a something that's often talked about, um, you know, with training in, in general is like, how do we get variable speed? In my opinion, that's one way, especially when you're, we're using the power of negative reinforcement. Um, Emily talked about using vibrate. For me, that's kind of a predictor of negative reinforcement for me. Anytime a dog feels vibrate, they can pretty much expect stimulation is going to follow that depending on what action they make um, in the form of continuous stimulation. So I want to pr- produce action with that vibrate button, whether it be away from me or towards me. Um, and that's how I use the collar. That's just a, a, simply a method for us Um Vibrate, a lot of times, will have the power of novelty and you'll see dogs react really strongly to it. That's why a, a a systematic and, you know, intentful collar conditioning process, I think, is important. We need to introduce the dog to stimulation and they need to know what it feels like and they need to know that it's not novel. They don't have to fear it. They have the power to turn it on and turn it off. Um, and, and they control it. And... If, if we don't expose them to it, they can't know that, but that's, you know, if you're out there and you're listening and you haven't ever collar conditioned a dog, it's a great time to get, at least seek a professional's help, Absolutely. you know, and somebody that's had had a lot of experience in, in that process um, can really, you know, lean on their experience to provide you with good, you know, good advice, where it's one of the things, if you don't quite understand when to come off of that throttle, yep. you can, uh, you can make some some poor decisions and and it's easy to do. It's hard, you know, hard to, uh, determine when you're correct and incorrect most times in that. So hopefully that, you know, from a practical standpoint that, that makes sense from, you know, in discussing negative reinforcement, anything else before we move on? No. Finally, the fourth and final quadrant, positive punishment. Um, the, the, uh, the great oxymoronic, uh, you know, joke that we all love to, when we're talking to, to folks that only believe in R-plus stuff. Um, essentially, when I talk about positive punishment, guys, I'm talking about an aversive correction. You know, dogs performing a behavior I don't like. You get in the trash can, nope, pain. Um, you dig a hole in the yard, nope, pain. You know, you chew on my shoe, nope, pain. Um, and I'm not, like a click and a treat, I'm never going to load or charge my mark with no and pain. I'm not going to sit here when you're not performing in a behavior and go, nope, pain. You know, so it, it, it's it's a different process. Is it classically conditioned? Yes. Is it, you know, it, does it take probably longer for that to, to make sense to the dog? Probably, you know. But I think if you're consistent about it, it's more fair. I would much rather say no, deliver pain every single time I, the word no leaves my mouth because I know that I'm being fair to the dog than if I start screaming at the dog and screaming no and the dog continues the behavior and then finally I lose my crap and I... You know, do something I regret, and that's going to injure my relationship with my dog at some point. You know, that's important to note. So subtlety, and and you know, in the way you prepare your dog uh, for reinforcement or punishment uh, is important, and controlling your emotions and let let the let the um, reinforcer or the punisher do the talking. Um. We often talk. You'll hear me a lot, especially in relationship to the Snake Version programs I do. Talk about singular learning event. That is a coin that, or a term that I first heard used by Sean Siggins of uh, uh of you know PSA decoy um, notability or notoriety. Uh, it's you can think of the same thing kind of in trash breaking hounds. You know, a dog maybe runs a deer or something like that that you don't want chasing a deer and uh, old houndsman, they. They don't, they don't shy away from the red button too much, you know? So that's what that is. That's that singular learning event. One time, one time only. And it's a big one. It's a wallop. And that's a, that's a positive punisher. Um, it's not something I recommend for getting in the trash can or chewing on your shoe or whatever. We won't warrant for those. I would prefer you a series of, you know, um, impactful, but, but fair corrections and then again, we talk about where the lines are blurred. Oftentimes, with this is with negative reinforcement. Um, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes where positive punishment starts and negative reinforcement stops, or vice versa. You know, uh, when I introduce the uh, the concept of push, you'll often hear me talk about push pull in regards to recall and uh, maybe force fetch, force to a pile, force to water, or getting to a place board or what have you. That's the push part of that. I like to start that with my dog already on a place board because they understand that because in a reward-based system, I got them to the place board in the first place, and now I'm going to introduce them to negative reinforcement with a slip lead usually or a, a prong collar or something like that, depending on the dog. They initiate by stepping off the board. When they've stepped off the board and I apply pressure, I'm certainly positively punishing the act of stepping off the board. The difference is I continue. The pressure stays constant until they move back to the board and I'm re- negatively reinforcing the act of stepping back to the board. So that's where the lines get blurred. A lot of times the dog's action, it would be a undesirable action. Undesirable behavior is the thing that's going to initiate my use of negative reinforcement to get them back in line with the appropriate behavior. Um, but somewhere in there, I'm positively punishing that, that inappropriate action that, that occurred in the first place. So that's positive punishment. Um, and that's where the lines are blurred. Any You think anything else in positive punishment before we move on? Pretty simple, straightforward. I'm yep. positive, adding, punisher, trying to make the behavior less likely to occur in the future. Guys, you know, um, none of these quadrants is an island. Uh, and operant conditioning is not a method. It gets described as a method often. It's It's a, in my opinion, it's a vocabulary we use to describe behavior. Um and how we manipulate a dog's behavior. So, um, again, you know, we're never just positively reinforcing. It's impossible to exist in one without somehow sliding off into another one at some point, you know, and that is a quadrant in this operant model. So become a master of all of the quadrants. Understand them. Whether you choose to apply them or not, that's your choice, but understand them. And then that way, you know, you're not, uh, you're not kind of living a lie when you think you're only acting in one way because you're always acting in multiple ways uh, to get to get that behavior from your dog. Um, we, you know, drive was a term we talked uh, talked about last week um and we'll continue so drive and drive manipulation is a little part I have in the notes uh drive defined is an increased arousal uh and internal motivation to reach a particular goal um we talk often about primary versus secondary drives so a primary drive would be directly tied to survival um a secondary would be an acquired drive you know and so um food drive in my opinion is primary i think of prey as being primary uh, when I talk about ball drive, eh, it's really a function of prey. Here's one though: when we talk about retrieve drive, that hundred percent secondary. That is something that's an acquired drive. We create that. It's a it's too complex to be uh, a behavior to just be you know um, considered a drive. You know what it is is the dog has enough prey drive and quote unquote ball drive to get out there after that ball, but he also has enough social awareness um, or desire to be with you, cooperation if you're an Avda fan, um, you know, ability, whatever, to want to bring that ball back to you because he knows you're going to reanimate it. He's smart enough to figure that out or just simply because he likes you enough that he wants to share it with you. I don't know. I've had puppies from the word go that always brought a retrieve item back to me, stuck it right in my hand, and wanted some love, and wanted a free toss. So, you know, I, I certainly believe that there's some relationship training stuff at play. It's not something that I can explain uh, critically the way I think we can with behavioral um, uh, vernacular. So I don't talk a lot about like relationship type training or pack theory or stuff like that. But some of that certainly plays a role. On you know, we I acknowledge it, that it's out there. Um, so. When a when a young dog gets to me, my first objective is drive building. I want to make a monster out of that dog. Uh, I want to create this, uh, you know, hard, fast, bird hating uh, pup that's going to, you know, just go out there and go crazy to get to get on a bird. Ways I can build drive. Um, is I'm going to harness frustration. You'll often see me. You don't see a lot of other bird dog people do this but something I picked up in my time in protection sports is like I'll choke a dog off of a bird I used to choke a puppy off of a rag right so we're playing rag and when I say choke I'm not really trying to get them to gag so much as I am just trying to uh, restrain them from that item until they spit it and then I keep them away from it building more and more frustration it's adding value to the item there's a value game there and I'm uh, really frustrating that puppy, and they want the bird. Bird's on the ground. Now I've kind of quote unquote choked you off, and I'm pulling you back. I'm restraining you by your collar. You're digging forward. You're digging forward, and the more, I, and I might put you up there. I may allow you to satisfy that drive and get it one more time because you pulled really, really hard, um, and re- reinforce that or reward that uh, that desire. Um, but the whole time I'm harnessing the power of that frustration of me keeping it just out of reach of you to make you want it more and more, and then I put you away and you want it really bad. Um, You know, drive building is when I'm doing that, I'm developing resilience. Uh, I'm increasing distractions. So if I'm having a puppy drag me to a bird, drag me to a bird, drag me to a bird, now things can start happening. You know, gunfire might be going off in the background. Other dogs are barking, Things, butterflies, whatever the dog was freaking out about at first. Now it's got a singular focus and it's full of desire. And so, um, I'm gonna skip some of the things in these notes because they're a little too complex, and we're getting we're getting on in time. So um, we're not going to talk about pain loading right now, but it's something that's a part of that that developing resilience, uh, capturing triggers or catalysts for drive. Um, just stepping on the field, think of that. That's a trigger when you're you know when you've been to Navda training day and you're on your like fourth or fifth visit and your dog's in the crate and now it's starting to whine when you turn in, um, you know, to blue horizon quail preserve and you get on the gravel and all of a sudden your dog's just back there scratching at the kennel gate and, and, you know, whining that's, that's drive being triggered. And, um, you know, hopefully we can take, you, you know, specific, stimuli and turn them into triggers for drive, gunshot being one of those, right? And then eventually we may want to neutralize them too, Uh, but we can talk about that into the future. Um, Drive capping. Oh man, this is, this could get deep. We're not going to talk a lot about it. Just know that if you see controlled chase on my notes and I'm talking about drive capping, um, when I'm beginning steadiness, this is how I do it. I'm Taking the dog. I want to make that monster. I'm cr- I've created this dog that's full of chase, and now I'm going to teach him that it's something that he and I uh, or she and I have control over together. And I don't want them to just anticipate chasing willy nilly uh, is going to get them what they want, that they're going to have to begin to control some impulses. They're going to have to start. Um, capping that drive and offering me maybe a different behavior or just simply existing until I'm there to release them again. Uh, That's capping. I want you to be in a super heightened state of arousal and I want you to control yourself until released or until asked to perform a second behavior. If I ask you to perform another behavior before I allow you to chase, I'm accessing pre-max principle. And that is um, a behavior of high probability reinforcing a behavior of low probability. It's highly likely that if I release you, you're going to go out there and find that bird. And if you do find it, you might point it, you might chase it, you might do whatever, but that's behaving. You're, you're reacting uh, to environmental stimuli. Um, It's certainly high probability. So maybe I recall you to heal first, which is a, Behavior you'd probably prefer not to perform, but because I've introduced that concept slowly over the course of time, boom, you snap in the heel because you know that's going to buy you that release. That is, is capturing and accessing pre-max principle and using it, utilizing it in training. So um, if you see me out there doing that, there's times I know a lot, we do this a lot with Blitz, Emily's dog, <laughs> where right she really, really wants to go forward. And sometimes we let her go forward we, and sometimes we recall her to heal. We want her always thinking about what she should be doing. If she's too busy thinking about whether she's going to be recalled to heal or whether she's going to be allowed into the field, she's, she's too busy to do too much other than stand there and wait to be released or wait to be recalled. Um, so, we, you know, those are good ways to get steadiness in really high drive dogs, which Blitz certainly is. Um, drive neutrality. We want to neutralize those triggers we were talking about earlier. So if a gunshot, and now I've gotten my gunshot to bring you into drive, you know, I, I, I use this example a lot, but I like it. I use a whip a lot. I'll run around in front of a dog on point and I'll start whipping. And if uh, I'm using cracking the whip, cracking the whip. Yeah. I'm not whipping the dog with the whip. I crack the Crack the whip is <laughs> you know simulating kind of gunfire. It's less than like a low pressure 22. Um, but it's enough. It's stimulating. So I'm stimulating the dog out there in front of them, I'm kicking around in front of them. If they step, the bird moves, you know, we may or may not control chase. Doesn't really matter there in that context. What, what does matter is that they begin to get used to all sorts of stimuli occurring in that context. And it doesn't matter. It's neutral, regardless of what's happening with the whip, the bird's still going to do what the bird does. And it's still there. And if you take a step, it's still going to fly away. Um, If you crowd this bird, I want you to worry that you're crowding this bird. I want you to worry that I'm crowding this bird and wish that I wasn't in there, you know, but you're steady and you're, you're stylish and you're intense because you know, uh, something's about to happen. So I don't want to trigger any sort of chase. I don't want to trigger any sort of drive. I want you to understand that, Hey, the whole world could be on fire around you. And the only thing that matters is staying steady for that bird in this moment. Um, and that is drive neutrality or, Stimu- stimulus neutrality in regards to triggering drive. Um, that is pretty much getting towards the end, guys. I, I appreciate you bearing with me today. We made it over an hour of jibber-jabber. Uh, maybe somebody will get in there and clean it up a little bit and we'll get down closer to an hour. I do on the notes, I have some dog trainer jargon. Um, let me visit this later. There's some, we could, we could really spend a lot of time discussing these terms I've put down here and I don't I don't want to do that today we've talked a lot about a lot of things hopefully the stuff we did discuss makes sense um, hopefully you could tolerate my tone and my and my um you know my cadence which I have trouble tolerating when I listen back to these things uh, but again thank you for being here Emily thank you very much I know uh, it's still one of those where it's a pretty one-sided conversation but I there, we're it's a guys, I promise you're going to get to hear a lot more from her in the very near future. And she's got a lot to offer. This is just kind of getting through the things that I needed to get out of my head and into, uh, the, the, uh, vapor sphere of the internet. Um, so join this conversation. Uh, we, I guess we probably don't have an email address quite yet, but we will soon.
1: Yeah. I just want to say that if any of this isn't clear, or if there's anyone that needs further clarification on something, definitely reach out. We want everyone to understand these things so that they can use them correctly. Um, I think it's really important that when we're discussing these things, we use the appropriate terms in the correct manner so that we don't promote any further confusion with anyone else
0: as well. Yeah. And I do, I catch myself getting confused as I say it very (laughs) often, you know, and you know, we're, we're, The plan is to hopefully have a a small community around this where we can discuss this and we can answer people's questions in real time and we can have frank discussions, you know, remotely, um, with one another. Uh, but we haven't released the first episode yet. So, you know, as we speak today, so that's coming soon. Hopefully next week we'll have, you know, we, we will have enough content to be able to not get behind and keep it coming to you guys. But I'm really, really excited because I hope it does kind of drive a, co- a little bit of a conversation within the gun dog community one that's been happening in other traditions of training for a long time and I think uh I'm excited it's an exciting time to be in hunting dogs because um I think we're we're getting there. So thanks again and uh and thanks for listening. Um you if you wanna find me I'm on the web at www.losthighwaykennels.com. Uh thanks to Chris Weitzel at New Path Digital for making that such an easy easy website to navigate you can pretty much get all your questions answered there and if you can't you can just fill out my web contact form and i'll get back in touch with you um emily would you like to let the folks know where you can find you
1: yeah um you can find me at shorthairsandshotguns.com and also on instagram or you can email me at shorthairsandshotguns at gmail.com
0: thanks for tuning in guys look forward to talking to you next week